Good evening. Tonight is Thursday, November 26th, 2020. It is such a great pleasure to welcome you to Mining the Riches of the Parsha for this week's Parsha, the Parsha of Ayetze. I'm so grateful to every one of you for joining in and allowing us to create this community, this connection between all of us. And it's a connection relating to study of Torah. There's nothing more powerful than that. So thank you very, very much for being with us this evening. As we turn our attention in this week's Parsha of Ayetze to Yaakov, our patriarch Jacob, beginning his family, which will form the basis of Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people. Let's focus for a moment on the choices that were made to reach this point. Avraham had two sons, Yishmael and Yitzchak. Yitzchak is chosen over Yishmael. Yitzchak has two sons, Esav and Yaakov. Yaakov is chosen over Esav. From this point, though, there is no more choosing that goes on. All of Yaakov's children are included in Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people. So the question is, why were these specific choices made? Why was this one in and this one out? Well, the answer is very simple. Avraham had two sons, Yishmael and Yitzchak. Yitzchak was a tzaddik. He was righteous. Yishmael was a Russia. Yishmael was wicked. He tried to kill his baby brother. He engaged in immorality. Obviously, he was not the one chosen to continue Avraham's destiny. Yitzchak had two sons, Esav and Yaakov. Yaakov was a tzaddik. He was righteous. Esav was a Russia. He was wicked. He committed murder. He was violent. He was abusive. He worshipped idols. Obviously, he was not chosen to continue Yitzchak's legacy. All of this is well known to every Jewish day school student. The problem is, <clears throat> none of this is actually written in the Torah. What does the Torah actually say? God says to Hagar, Yishmael's mother, about her son Yishmael, God says, I will make him into a great nation. And then the angel says about Yishmael, God will be with this boy, Yishmael. And he will grow up, and he will dwell in the desert, and he will be an expert archer with bows and arrows. He will be an expert. That's what the Torah says. Concerning Esav, the Torah says, Ish Yodeat 
Esav was an expert hunter. He was very good at hunting. Ish Sadeh, a man of the outdoors. What's so terrible? Doesn't sound so horrible to be an expert archer, an expert hunter, to be a person of the outdoors. What's so terrible with those descriptions? Why do we end up with Yaakov? So there's one approach, and this is a fundamental approach to interpreting and understanding the Torah, not only this passage, but the entirety of the Torah. And I would refer to it as the Midrashic approach, the approach of the Medrash, which is that the rabbis construct background stories. Now, these stories are not in the text explicitly. Perhaps they are hinted at in the text. But all of the faults that I just mentioned, which are not found anywhere within the text of the Torah itself, they are found in the Midrash. Our rabbis, in providing to us the background stories, in fleshing out the personalities of the people who have involved, they also ascribe words and actions to these characters so that we have a fuller sense of who they are, what their personality is. Now, it's complicated to know if the rabbis, in giving their midrashic interpretation, if the rabbis mean to assert that these things actually literally happened, or are the rabbis providing context? Are they providing maybe the sense of the matter? Which, of course, as you understand, is often ambiguous and contradictory, just as real life is. Many, many famous ideas that we have about the Torah are in this category. Last week we read I'm sorry, two weeks ago we read about Rivka agreeing to marry Yitzchak. How old was Rivka when she agreed to marry Yitzchak? The Torah does not tell us. The Torah is silent on that point. The Medrash says three different opinions. One opinion says she was three years old. Another opinion says that she was 13 years old. A third opinion says she was 30 years old. Now, clearly we don't know for sure it's not written in the text of the Torah. Perhaps these different opinions suggest different understandings of what her consent signified. The consent of a three-year-old signifies something different than the consent of a 30-year-old. So much of what we know about the Torah, what he said, what she said, what they did. For example, so much of the commentary of Rashi, the classic medieval commentator, 
is not within the text of the Torah itself. Perhaps it's hinted at in the text, but it's from the Midrash. I'll give you another example. Several weeks ago, Akedas Yitzchak, the binding of Isaac. Isaac is put on an altar, bound, placed on an altar. His father believes that he's supposed to offering his, offer him as an offering. At the last minute, God calls out to Avram, don't touch the boy. How old was Yitzchak when that occurred? The Torah does not tell us. How old was Yitzchak? One opinion in the Medrash says Yitzchak was three years old. Another opinion in the Medrash says, no, he was in his 30s. What are the rabbis trying to teach us with this? Well, it certainly makes a very big difference in our understanding of the dynamics of the narrative if Abraham is doing this to a boy of three years old versus doing this with a man in his 30s. It's a completely different story. Okay. That is an important part of how we understand Torah through the comments of our rabbis in the Midrash, even though it is not actually part of the text of the Torah itself. Okay, that's one path. There's another path to understanding the Torah. <clears throat> we could refer to this as Omek Pshuto Shel Mikra, a deep and close reading of the actual text of the Torah. We confine ourselves to the words that are there, but we read them very, very closely and carefully in order to interpret and understand the fuller picture than what is presented to us on the surface. Let's try that. What does the Torah actually say about Yishmael and Esau? For neither Yishmael nor Esau does, does the Torah say anything evil or wicked that could be a rationale within the text of the Torah itself for why their brother was chosen instead of them. What do we see in the text? Well, what I shared with you before. Yishmael is described as an aggressive archer. Esav is described as someone who is very physical, a man of the outdoors. Both of them clearly are strong, unafraid, rooted in the physical, mundane, practical world. As opposed to Yitzchak and Yaakov, who are described in the Torah as meditative, scholarly, spiritual. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory suggests that the choosing of Yitzchak over Yishmael and the choosing of Yaakov over Esau is one of the fundamental lessons of Judaism. And that is, there is more to this world than just the physical, mundane, practical world. There is more to this world than what we can see and taste and feel. 
this world, the physical world, is connected to heaven. The physical has a counterpart in the spiritual. At the beginning of our Parsha, the famous dream that Yaakov has of a ladder, which is standing on the earth, and the top reaches to heaven, and at the top of the ladder, there stands God above us. The essential meaning of that dream is that there is a connection between physical and spiritual. One cannot exist without the other. Last week, I said to you that I do not understand why Rivka needed to deceive her husband Yitzchak into giving the blessing that Yitzchak was planning to give to Esau to give it to Yaakov. I don't understand why it was necessary. Clearly, Rivka disagreed with Yitzchak's decision and felt that the blessing should go to Yaakov. Fine, I understand that. Why did she have to go about it through this elaborate deception? That's difficult, we'll leave that to the side. But let's just take the point from her point of view. Rivka understood that Yaakov needed the blessing Yitzchak had intended for Esau because that blessing was, after all, the blessing of physical plenty. And God will give you from the dew of the heavens and from the fertile fat of the earth that's the blessing that Yitzchak thought he was giving to Esau, but actually gave to Yaakov. That's a blessing of physical plenty. Rivka understood that Yaakov, the spiritual one, needed that blessing. Because how can you survive in this world if you are only spiritual and meditative how can you survive? Yaakov, the spiritual, scholarly, meditative one, needed this blessing of Esau, needed this, what was a part of Esau, to facilitate his spiritual life. Because you can only sustain a spiritual life if you have the means to survive. But at the same time, if you can't find meaning in life that goes beyond the physical, if you can't find that, if you don't comprehend that there is something beyond ourselves, something that connects all of us outside of biology, if you don't realize that there is something that transcends nature, namely God and all that God teaches us, you will likewise not find meaning in life. Yitzchak and Yaakov understood that. They understood that ultimately the spiritual, scholarly, meditative quests in life give it meaning. 
yes, they also had to have the physical sustenance in order to survive. But at least they understood where the meaning in life comes from. Yishmael and Esav did not. Yishmael and Esav, as the Torah itself describes, were purely physical, mundane, practical men. The Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, a blessed memory, once wrote, the central figure in Jewish history has not been the king, not the field marshal, not the political leader, but the teacher surrounded by children. In Judaism and throughout Jewish history, we have kings, we have field marshals, we have political leaders, and they are important because they are necessary and we respect them, but they are not central. Our central figures are Yitzchak, not Yishmael, Yaakov, not Esau. Our central figures are those who are strong enough to live and flourish in this physical world while being spiritual enough to give life meaning beyond ourselves. Yaakov becomes Yisrael and creates the Jewish people because Yisrael, Israel, is the people who in themselves testify to something beyond themselves. And that is how we arrive at Yaakov to create the Jewish people, starting in our Parsha. But please don't discount the Midrashic approach to interpretation that fills in and fleshes out the text of the Torah because many of our most important and lasting lessons and values are transmitted there. And allow me to share with you one of the most beautiful, poignant Midrashic lessons which comes from our Parsha. Now this first part may be familiar to you, but I want to add something that takes it to another surprising level. Our Parsha describes Yaakov travels to his mother's family. He meets and falls in love with Rachel and asks her father, his uncle Lavan, for permission to marry her. Lavan agrees, but Yaakov must work first for seven years. Finally, the day of the wedding arrives, and at the wedding, Lavan fraudulently substitutes Leah, Rachel's sister, at the wedding. And Yaakov is married to Leah, not to Rachel. Later, Yaakov also marries Rachel, but before we go further, let's focus now on the deception itself. 
How do you pull that off? How do you pull off the wrong daughter getting married under the chuppah? How does that happen? Well, perhaps somehow the veil played a role. Maybe a lack of lighting was somehow involved. But there is a curious phrase in the text of the Torah. The Torah says as follows. And it was in the morning, the morning after the wedding, Yaakov realized that the woman who he had married was actually Leah. He went immediately to his father-in-law, his new father-in-law, Lavan, and he said to him, What did you do to me? I thought I was getting married to Rachel. How did I end up being married to Leah? Our rabbis noticed a curious, subtle, curious phrase. And it was in the morning, the morning after the wedding, and Yaakov realizes, uh-oh, I'm married to Leah, not to Rachel. Let me ask you a question. It was only in the morning that Yaakov realized that he had been tricked? Did he not realize the night before, the night of the wedding, that he was with someone other than Rachel? So here our rabbis provide a remarkable backstory. Rashi tells us that Yaakov suspected that Lavan would try some kind of a trick like this. And he acted to try to prevent it. Rashi says, Yaakov told passwords to Rachel. Codes. Special words that Rachel should say to him under the chuppah so that Yaakov would know that it was Rachel because he was worried that Lava might try some kind of a trick and have somebody else under the chuppah. So Yaakov and Rachel had arranged these passwords, these special words. Only the two of them knew what the words were. And when Rachel would speak these words, Yaakov would know he was marrying the right person. He was marrying Rachel, who he loved. But then Rachel saw that her father was escorting Leah down the aisle to the chuppah, to the wedding. Amra, she said to herself, if Leah goes under that chuppah and Yaakov is going to ask for the words and she's not going to know those words, Achshav Tichole my sister is going to be humiliated. The wedding will be interrupted Everyone will be angry and my sister Leah will be ashamed and humiliated. Amda umasrala osan simanim. Rachel whispered the secret words to Leah. So that night, Leah said those words to Yaakov, which he was expecting. 
expecting to hear from Rachel. Yaakov counted on the, dece the, the deceitfulness of Lavan. He didn't count on this altruistic act of Rachel. So that night, Yaakov thought that he had married Rachel because he married the woman who said the correct words, which in his mind was Rachel. Only in the morning did Yaakov realize that in fact he had married Leah. That's why it says, by Yibaboker, only in the morning did Yaakov realize this. This action stands for all time as one of the great acts of selflessness and altruism. Rachel did not know she would marry Yaakov later. In her mind, she was giving up her opportunity to marry the man that she loved and who loved her in order to prevent her sister from embarrassment. That is a profoundly beautiful backstory. But now let's ask two questions. Okay, <clears throat> Rachel is amazing, no question. Amazing. But why did Leah agree? Didn't Leah feel guilty receiving these passwords from her sister Rachel? Didn't she feel guilty tricking Yaakov? And besides that, for the rest of her life, wouldn't Leah feel ashamed that she knew that forever Yaakov actually did not choose her, that she was married to a man who did not choose to be married to her? Why would she agree to such a thing? What kind of a favor is that to offer the passwords when the shame will be enduring forever to live with the guilt? Further, a second question. So a little bit later in the Parsha, there's a very short narrative. And this narrative seems to be completely inexplicable. Okay, so Yaakov does later marry Rachel, and Rachel and Leah are rivals. They are rivals for Yaakov's attention. They are rivals for children. They are rivals for affection and love. Years go by. Leah gives birth to Yaakov's first son, Reuven. And the Torah tells us as follows. Vayelech Reuven kitim. And Reuven was out walking during the springtime, the time of the spring harvest, and Reuven, this little boy Reuven, walking out in the fields, sees Dudaim. Rashi says it's jasmine. He sees this sweet-smelling plant that is growing in the field. It smells nice, jasmine. And he brings it home to his mother, Leah. Beautiful. A little boy. He's out walking. He sees something that smells so beautiful and he brings it back for his mother to enjoy. Beautiful. 
Fatomer Rachel, Rachel says to her sister Leah, Fatomer Rachel Leah, Rachel says to Leah, Tni nali mi may I please have some of the jasmine that your son Reuven brought for you? Smells beautiful. May I please have a little? Fatomer Now, keep in mind, this is Leah speaking to Rachel. She's responding to Rachel's request to have some of the jasmine. Vatomer Leah says to Rachel, Hama'at kaktech es ishi. You already took my husband. V'lakachas gam es dudoe b'ni. You also want to take the jasmine that my son brought to me? Leah says to Rachel, you, by marrying Yaakov after me, you already took from me Yaakov's undivided attention and affection. Because of you, I have to share my husband with a, a rival. And now you also want to take from me the sweet-smelling jasmine that my son brought to me? Wait a minute. Hold on. Something's wrong here. Rachel took Yaakov away from Leah? Is that really the story? No. It's only because of Rachel that Leah was married to Yaakov to begin with. Rachel was supposed to be the first wife. She was supposed, presumably, to be the only wife. The only reason Leah was married to Yaakov was because of Rachel. How could Leah forget what Rachel had sacrificed so that she, Leah, would be able to marry Yaakov? How could Leah ever forget Rachel's selflessness all to protect Leah from being shamed at the wedding? Where is Leah's gratitude? Where is Leah's appreciation for the rest of her life? She was in debt, should have felt indebted to Rachel for what she had done. How could she complain if Rachel simply asked for a little bit of the jasmine? It makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense until we hear the insight of Rabbi Shalom Shvadron. Rav Shvadran writes something that changes our entire understanding of this story. And that is, Leah never knew there was a story. Rav Shvadran says that only three people knew that Rachel was supposed to marry Yaakov. Yaakov knew. He asked Lavan for permission to marry Rachel. Lavan knew because he at first granted permission for Yaakov to marry Rachel. And Rachel knew because she accepted the offer to be married to Yaakov. Only those three. None of them told anyone else. In other words, not only did Rachel protect her sister Leah from being embarrassed at the wedding, 
that she was really not the one that Yaakov had chosen. Rachel allowed Leah to believe that she was and always had been the intended bride forever. Rachel taught Leah the, the passwords, but she didn't say to her, Leah, these are the secret words by which Yaakov is going to know it's the right wife. Rachel said to her, Leah, my sister, you're about to get married. Here are some words that are appropriate for a wife to say to her husband. Leah had no idea that by saying these words, she was in fact mimicking a specific password that was going to identify her as Rachel. She had no idea because she never knew that Rachel had any intention of marrying Yaakov. Rachel gave Leah the signs, but didn't tell them why they were given to her. And since Leah did not know that Yaakov was supposed to marry Rachel, Leah did see Rachel as the second wife. She did see Rachel as a threat to her favored first wife status. And so this is no longer a one-time story. This is an ongoing secret a continuous refusal to divulge a lifetime of holding it in, of humbly submitting, of biting the tongue. Can you imagine how many times Rachel must have been tested, must have wanted to say something? Because uh, the Torah is clear, they were rivals. There was rivalry between them. Like with the jasmine. Can't you imagine Rachel would have wanted to say to her, how dare you withhold, you're only married to, to, to Yaakov because of me? How many times must have Rachel wanted to let it out? But instead, she chose to be forever involved in a secret entirely selfless mitzvah every second of every day of her life. Leah never knew. Leah always maintained the dignity of looking at herself as the chosen wife, as the first wife. And Rachel's secret remained even in death. Leah is buried beside Yaakov, where she would have expected to be buried as his first chosen wife, according to her understanding. Rachel is buried alone, miles away near Beislechem, Bethlehem, just south of Yerushalayim. Our rabbis in the Medrash connect this fact to a Midrashic heavenly confrontation and to a prophecy of the prophet Yirmiyahu, the prophet Jeremiah. Later in history, 
centuries later in history, during the first temple period, the spiritual level of the Jewish people in Israel declines. And some Jews even begin worshiping idols, angering God over this rivalry, choosing idols over God. And God planned to destroy the Jewish people, to end the Jewish story. Our rabbis in the Medrash describe how one by one the souls of the patriarchs and the matriarchs come before God to plead for mercy, to relent from destroying their children. And God ignored the pleas of every one of them. Until the soul of Rachel comes before God. And Rachel said, Master of the universe, surely your mercy is greater than any human mercy. But when I was faced with a rival, when my father Lavan substituted Leah for me to marry Yaakov, not only did I remain silent, I gave Leah the passwords so she would not be embarrassed. I allowed a rival to come between me and my beloved, to come into what would be my home? Surely you, God, should do the same for your children, my children, that they have chosen a rival. You should forgive them. Surely, God, your, mar your mercy has got to be greater than mine. If I could forgive a rival, surely you can forgive a rival. And God said to her, Rachel, you have defended them well. And God said, I will send them into exile. I will destroy the temple, the Beit HaMikdash. I will send them into exile, but I will not destroy them. And I will bring them back to Israel. Rachel is buried along the road the Jewish people traveled as they went into exile. And Rachel's soul cried for them as they passed her grave. But through the prophet Yirmiyahu, God makes this promise. And this passage is a passage that we read as the Haftorah on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Call Amar Hashem. Thus does God say, Call Baraman Nishma. I hear a sound in Ramah. That's the place where Rachel is buried. I hear the sound of Nihi Bechi Samrurim. I hear the sound of wailing and bitter weeping. Rachel Mavaka Albaneha. Rachel is crying for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are gone. 
They have been sent into exile. They passed by her grave on their way into exile. And Rachel is crying bitter tears. Ka Omar Hashem. So does God say, Mini kolech mi bechi. Rachel, stop your crying. The einayach mi dima. And stop your eyes from weeping tears. Ki yesh because there will be a reward for your actions. Neum Hashem promises God. Veshavu me'eretz oyev. Your children will return from an alien exile. Veyesh tikva la'acharisech neum Hashem. And there will be hope in the end. God promises. Veshavu vanim ligvulam. Your children will return to their home. Today, almost 4,000 years later, Rachel's secret remains hidden from Leah. Rachel's selflessness remains for us as a guide in how we should act. And Rachel's legacy is the woman who would do anything for her children, anything for her sister, and never tell. I want to say one last thing, and I want to say this in an oblique manner. I promise you, that when you look back at your life, you will never feel as good as when you helped someone else when it was hard, when it hurt to do it, and when you never told. I promise you, that will be, for all time, the high point of your life. My friends, thank you very much. I want to wish you a great evening and a wonderful Shabbos. I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.